The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. You're watching Sportbox. Here are your headlines. Armin Lachit moves one step closer to succeeding Chancellor Angela Merkel, winning the backing of the Christian Democrats. But questions remain about his candidacy. U.S. stocks slip from record highs, with tech dragging Wall Street lower as Tesla shares fall after a fatal crash and investors remain cautious ahead of more key earnings. The Chinese President Xi Jinping calls for more global cooperation and equitable governance as he addresses the Boao Forum. And BMW roars back in the first quarter, posting a 370% jump in earnings, helped by strong Chinese demand and higher prices as sales grow in all major regions. The UK government says it will do whatever it takes to block the European Super League as UEFA calls the breakwave movement a spit in the face of football lovers and issues a stark warning to players. The players who will play in the teams that uh, might uh, play in, uh, in, a, in the closed league will be banned on playing the World Cup and Europe. So let's catch up with events in Germany. Armin Laschet has won the backing of Germany's Christian Democrats to represent the party in federal elections to replace Chancellor Angela Merkel in September. More than three quarters of senior CDU voters uh, leaders voted to support Laschet over rival Marcus Soda from Bavarian sister party, the CSU. Let's get to Aneta for more on how important this latest decision is. Uh, morning, Aneta. Uh, so Armin Laschet, I guess, was always the favourite in this story. Does that now mean that he's got the job? Not yet, I have to say, because clearly what we are seeing is a major rift inside the Christian Democratic Party. I've never seen such a power struggle before. So essentially, of course, Armin Laschet got the backing by the board of the CDU, but the lawmakers, the, the people who are really voted in parliament, they are um, in majority in favor of Markus Söder, according to recent uh, reports. So essentially, it will be super interesting to see what's going to happen now, because it could also be that they're really protesting against that uh, vote on top of the party and nobody really reconnected with the basis of the party. It's a vote uh, out of loyalty to Armin Laschet because clearly if you look at opinion polls, his showing in the polls, if you ask German whether he's a good chancellor candidate, only 12% think that he is. And Markus Söder has a huge backing by the general electorate and also, as I was saying, the lawmakers. So essentially... The CDU is in a very bad shape, only months to go until the general election. At the same time, we have a Green Party who has never been as strong before, 
we were talking about Annalena Baerbock yesterday, the new candidate or the first candidate for chancellery ever for the Greens. And she is very much adamant about the fact that we need change in Germany and we need to transition Germany. So it's it's still an outside chance that she could win the chancellery. But with the CDU being stuck in such a power struggle, nothing is impossible anymore. Yesterday, I spoke to Jürgen Trittin, a, a very prominent figure here on the, the Green Party scene, former co-leader of the party, chief whip of the party, and asked him whether he thinks Angela, uh, Annalena Baerbock might actually make it into chancellery. Take a listen. I've never seen in my political life such a crisis within the conservative Christian Democratic Party. In history, the Christian Democrats all the time, they were not real conservatives. They were never an ideological party, but they were always a company that runs for chancellery. And, and I see now is that they fail on this core issue of them by do not deciding who will run for them. And even if they decide now, the other, other side on the party is so much hurt and damaged that they will have a real problem in the election campaign so the general perception is, if you look at uh, the current state of the parties here in Germany, the Greens do actually have the best um, sort of presentation of themselves and also a very valid um, offer to the German electorate. And whereas the CDU seems to really be really in shambles, it reminds me of the days when Helmut Kohl uh, was more or less ousted from his job and Angela Merkel then after a while took over. And at that time, the CDU was also in a very dismal state after 16 years of someone heading the party um, and the same more or less might be holding true now. But it remains to be seen. Some it's still some months to go until the general election. But one thing is clear, it's not over yet. Markus Söder can still strike back. With that, back to you. All right. Lovely. Thanks very much indeed, Annette, for that. And we'll be continuing the conversation on the latest developments in Berlin with Green Party lawmakers Konstantin von Notz, will join us. That conversation coming up at 9.15 Central European time. And for more on the race to succeed Angela Merkel as Chancellor, along with all of our special coverage in our Germany Engine of Europe franchise, head online to cnbc.com. Let's take another quick look at these markets as well, because although it made it to the headlines that we saw some of the biggest declines on the US indices since the 23rd of March, all, you know, albeit only just under a month ago, they actually weren't very big declines at all. In fact, we saw a 6% increase in the VIX, but quite frankly, from a 16 handle to a low 17 handle is pretty much small change compared to some of the volatility we saw uh, over the last year. The Dow, for instance, is down 0.4 of a percent, the S&P down 0.5. They are both uh, respectively 0.5 and 0.6 of a percent away from their record highs. And given the fact that we have 80 companies reporting in the S&P 500 this week, 80 companies, uh, markets taking a little pause before we get, of course, the large number of beats on both uh, profits and indeed revenues. And I, I say that with a great degree of prediction 
because we will, because they've already been marked down. It's the outlook I think everyone wants to look at. And I think the markets are remarkably relaxed at the moment, given the pressures we're seeing. Pressures on both sides of the roster, actually. When you consider the fact is that we saw such stunning data last week, which as you, if you're watching the program yesterday, you'd know slightly bemused me. I was pleased to read when I've been reading various bits of copy that bond markets were also slightly bemused by the fact that we went down to a point, a 1.6% 10-year yield, uh, given the fact that we'd come from one percent seven originally and the data had been so good you don't tend to buy treasuries when the data is so good anyway historically but now of course these markets are doing their own thing as well plus on the other side of the ledger i mean devastating figures if i said to you viewers that the world's largest democracy with over a billion people is seeing over two hundred thousand infections of what could be a very serious variant of covid19 every single day you should be suitably shocked, shouldn't you? But yet the markets are ignoring it in some fashion as well. Despite the fact that when we had 60,000 infections a day in the United States, the markets were in terror about it as well. So just very interesting looking that some very large economies uh, and countries in the world are still very, very concerned about the pandemic. We're all very concerned about it, but are seeing devastating infection levels as well. So just a little bit of caveat for those who think we have defeated the pandemic and it is behind us, despite the fact that in countries such as the US and the United Kingdom and Israel, we are seeing very, very good vaccination rates. Let's move on to the technology story, because as you'll notice here, uh, NAS well, I was going to, yeah, NASDAQ is down 1%. Uh, but one of the catalysts for that uh, is Tesla, which is down 3.4%. Now, the shares uh, shed some losses in extended trade after the CEO, Elon Musk, said data logs showed the autopilot function had not been enabled in a fatal car crash in Texas. Uh, as you can see, the shares fell over 3% in session after local police said initial investigations showed no one was at the wheel of the Model S when it hit a tree and burst into flames. Uh, two men were killed in the crash. Police say they will demand Tesla share the data logs with authorities as part of their investigation. Uh, again, some of the other indicators you, you might want to have a look at, it. some of the markets that have had a very big run up, just giving back a bit of ground, including the Russell 2K, um, which uh, Russell 2K, um, breaking its uh, win streak, uh, as you can see on the screen there as well. And the transports as well. Let's take a look at the transports. Uh, down 0.8 of 1% uh, in the session. Right, let's move on to treasuries and have a look at uh, where the treasuries are trading. I mentioned the, the low handle there. Again, 1.612, uh, the 10-year yield, the 30-yield, uh, 2.3. And the dollar crosses for you as well. Once again, the dollar underwhelming. Uh, Euro dollar now trading 120, sterling 140. So despite the fact, Jeff and Karen, and good morning to Karen as well, but despite the fact, Jeff, that we've seen the markets just coming back a tiny weeny bit as well, I wonder if A, it's the start of a bit of a more modest performance, or B, actually they're just gearing themselves up for what is going to be a very important week on the corporate earnings front. I think we were always set for a little bit of consolidation early on in the week. Last week was pretty strong. Uh, across the indices. So, um, uh, you know, the chance for investors maybe to have a think about the pace at which we see the rebound in economic activity. And it's interesting, we've had all sorts of uh, shifts and upgrades. Um, the uh, OBR talking about the uh, improvement in the jobless picture going forward here for the UK. And, and I think the, the fact that we're up at 140 
uh, again or thereabouts on sterling, an indication that the market is happy to own sterling at the moment in spite of some of the jitters around Scottish independence and what's going on north of the border. I mean, underlying sentiment remains positive. I think that's the message that you were giving at the wall about the economic recovery. The question is how that bakes down into markets. And it was interesting that the dollar was weaker, not stronger, in spite of expectations that we are going to get improving growth in the U.S. Karen, I'll bring this to you. Let's just go with the fact that the data looks pretty fantastic in, in, in the United States and pretty good elsewhere in many ways as well. And that has propelled the market higher. Tick, tick, tick. I understand that. So why on earth are we seeing these crazy lack of reactions, probably inverse reactions in the dollar and the treasuries? I just don't understand it unless there's something afoot that we're not seeing. I think the central bank's done such a good job at guiding the market at this point. Very dovish commentary about how much further we must go to recover some of the lost economic growth and bring back employment at this point. So monetary policy will remain super accommodative and, of course, fiscal policy as well. So I think there's been a, a very good job from the communication in the last couple of weeks from the central bank that has made a difference. The question is whether it sticks. And I think if you look uh, underlying some of these markets, even some of the appetite for real estate at some point, there is a, a move towards assets that may at some point protect you from inflation. I think that's very much still in the backdrop of some investors' minds. But, uh, you know, front and centre earnings season, there's this huge distraction as we look at all these report cards crossing. And I can't read much into to yesterday's session. I think when you look at the fact that technology came off, well, there's been a lot of buying in recent weeks in the lead up to earnings season and that category as well. Apple has performed particularly well. Don't forget we're on the cusp of a, a, a big launch later on today around iPads and also uh, the Internet of Things and tags that are attached to keys, for instance. So I think the market is looking for the next story when it comes to the technology names to justify just that quickly we've accelerated. They want to see that in earnings. They want to see it in product launches. So, you know, they're waiting for that proof and the pudding type of moment from technology. But equally from the banks, we saw a lot of activity in the lead up to the banking sector report cards and some of that then unlocked even further gains. I think we are in a lull just waiting for a little bit more evidence at this point. But I don't understand. So I I go back to my initial point, and maybe Jeff can help me. I don't understand how buying treasuries at 1.6% yield can protect anyone against inflation. And I'll just draw your attention or everyone's attention to the fact that the University of Michigan year ahead inflation measure was 3.7% in April. The highest since 2012. The conference board's one-year inflation metric was 6.7% in March, up from 6.5% in February and the highest since 2011. When are we going to start thinking that this isn't just transitory and there's something else going on? And and there's a multitude of evidence there that there are other things afoot as well, uh, including the unbelievable prices we're seeing of uh, products such as lumber. Uh, cognitive Which builds houses. Yeah, cognitive absolutely. Cognitive dissonance. dissonance. <laughs> and I'll come back to this point because I don't think the story is certain at this stage. I still think there is enough doubt in both arguments for investors to be hedging their bets somewhat because the Fed continues to make the case this is transitory. We've had plenty of commentators on our air who say the Fed is right, that the underlying strength of the consumer and the overleveraged corporate sector suggest actually that the fundamentals that are underpinning the rebound at this point 
are not so robust that we are embarking on a new economic cycle. And if you buy that argument, then you agree with the fact that we will have stronger headline inflation, but we won't see underlying or core stay higher for longer. The other side of the ledger, of course, is the point that you're making, that as we see prices going up everywhere, it seems madness to make the case that these are going to be transitory effects because higher prices will ultimately lead to higher wage demands from workers who feel increasingly poorer as they see the price of everything they need Let's go up. Let's start at the foundations. Well, actually slightly above the foundations. What do you build a house with in America ab- above the foundations? Uh, yeah, we've got bricks and mortar, but basically wood, yeah? So if lumber rises above the base effect of the the declines we saw of last year to record levels, including the lumber futures for May yesterday hit a new intraday all-time high, not a transitory base effect increase year on year from where we were at our lows last year. I'm talking about an all-time high of $1,326.7 per thousand board feet. It's a a strange measure, but that's what they use. Uh, Per thousand board feet, TBF. Lumber is up. 52% this year. This year is three and a half months old. It has more than doubled uh, uh, in 2020. It was up 110% last year. It's up 52% this year. Please, Mr. Powell, tell me, how is that a base effect? Uh, it is a base effect. I mean, it's a supply chain issue. There, there is no, no shortage. About it went down last year, so if it's going <clears> up this year, it's just a rebound in price. There's no shortage of trees. I mean, the problem well, is that we shut down the mills uh, for a long period of time last year. I mean, I, I know I built a fence last year, <laughs> and I, went, I, I actually looked around to get a contractor to come in to put the fence up for me. And they were all, you know, doing that thing that contractors love to do when you know it's going to be expensive. They sort of sit back, uh, whistle through their teeth, sharp intake of breath. Well, Mr. Cutmore, I'm afraid... Probably fit you in July next year. And that's the point. Because they couldn't get easy access to the supply of wood that they needed because the mills have been shut for a long time because of the lockdowns. And so I guess as you get the um, demand increase coming out of the lockdowns, there's going to be this strange concertina effect where in all the industries where demand picks up very strongly, there has to be matching supply or excess supply to keep prices level or lower. Mm -hmm. Right now, I think you've got a lot of merchants who are taking advantage of the fact that there are people like me who want to have a fence built. And they can say, well, you know, Mr. Cutmore, we can actually get you that fence, but it's going to cost you 20% extra. Oh, and the contractor's going to up their fee as well because they're kind of busy at the moment. What kind of fence? Just a plain, boring, wooden fence, no trim, no colour, nothing special about it. Very small back garden. Sounds awful. Karen. Look at, look at you trying to get ahead of expectations on, on prices, Jeff, by building the fence early, a little bit foiled by those contractors. He's subbing but, out. He's no, just a small box to you, Karen. This, guy, this guy's got so many talents, he's subbing out as an Indian. What are you doing, car mechanics? <clears throat> building fences? You do ele- I know you do electrics. I can't do any of it. I might be able to paint a room. He's a very handy man, Karen, if you can get Jeff him into uh, trendy North London. Cooking. 
he's a, he's a hidden chef as well, many talents. But you know, I think the point is we you do have an escalation prices, not just in lumber, not just in contractors, in copper prices as well. But you are seeing it in terms of a lot of investors placing money into hard assets being real estate. And that was in the stock market yesterday. But we, I think we're seeing more broadly across many property markets in various parts of the world. So the inflation story we're talking about is, is coming through in some asset classes. We're going to park it there, but uh, coming up on the show, we're going to talk about China as Xi Jinping touts his country's credentials as an open global partner. We'll discuss next. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has warned that America is falling behind China when it comes to renewable energy. He said green energy investments will be key if the country wants to succeed in a long-term strategic cooperation with China. This after the two countries agreed closer cooperation to fight climate change over the weekend. President Joe Biden is also due to host a virtual climate summit with leaders of 40 countries this week. We'll discuss more how countries can address their climate pledges when we speak to Paula Naperno, who is Special Advisor at CDP. Don't miss that interview at 9.30 CET. Chinese President Xi Jinping has pledged to never seek hegemony, no matter how strong the country becomes. Um, let's get to Sam. It's a kind of cryptic comment. Let's see if we can unpack this. Mm. Sam, just explain why... Xi Jinping feels it necessary to make this remark at this point. Good morning to you, Jeff. Well, I mean, you've got to look at the backdrop uh, here. You know, we do have uh, China's remarkable economic recovery, but we do have uh, rising geopolitical tensions uh, at the same time. And so President Xi Jinping really drove home this message of global governance to make things more equitable and fair. And really the big takeaways from his speech uh, was multilateralism and also this win-win cooperation to really overcome the risks and challenges facing uh, the world right now. These are not really new words. We hear this a lot coming from the Chinese government. So this was really a reiteration of that. But what he did do is warn at the same time against unilateralism, saying that uh, the building of barriers and decoupling only hurts others and uh, doesn't benefit anyone. Now, he didn't name names specifically, but this could certainly be read perhaps as a veiled swipe at the US, as we do know that there is this continued pressure when it comes uh, to things like trade and human rights. 
rights. Now, of course, the big themes coming out of this Boal Forum this year is uh, vaccines, uh, climate and the digital economy. He spoke about all three areas. He said that China would want to boost the digital economy and support innovation. He called for, uh, you know, this international cooperation when it came to vaccines to make them more affordable and more accessible for developing nations. But he also talked about this green cooperation and particularly on China's ambitious Belt and Road Initiative, which is uh, President Xi Jinping's signature infrastructure project. But uh, turning his focus closer to home, uh, he did really talk up China's uh, economic recovery and uh, uh, did uh, talk up uh, this idea of these global partnerships. Take a listen. China will take an active part in multilateral cooperation on trade and investment, fully implement the foreign investment law and its supporting rules and regulations, cut further the negative list on foreign investment, continue to develop the Hainan free trade port, and develop new systems for a higher standard open economy. All are welcome to sharing the vast opportunities of the Chinese market. So China there continuing to signal that it is certainly uh, open for business. But while there was a lot of talk about working together, there were also some uh, strong veiled messages, as I said, uh, particularly against meddling in one's internal affairs, which we do know as uh, the US, as I say, has been keeping the pressure on China when it comes to a number of areas, including democracy and human rights. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.